now. Uh, Morena Koto, welcome to the Water Field Trip Web Conference, Web Conference number one. Um, today we're going to <coughs> begin our web conference with a karakia, and in fact that's how we will now begin all our web conferences. So, whakatakataho ki te uru, whakatakataho ki te tonga, kia mā kene kene ki uta, kia mā taratara ki tai, kia he ake ana te atākura, te hio, he tio, he huka, he hauhu, Homie, we So great to see everyone here this morning. Welcome all listening schools and a very warm welcome to our guests whom I will introduce to you in a moment. So right now you're at the Central Plains Water Sheffield Storage Pond on-site office. So we've just come inside to the office and in a moment or after the web conference, we will take you to have a look at the storage pond so just before Shelley was showing you around, and she is still showing us around actually. Um, so she was showing you around just the outside. You're having a look at some of those big pipes that convey water to to various sites throughout Canterbury, taking water from these storage sites such as here. So um, what we'll do is I'll just do a bit of around the room. So to my right here is, is John. Hi, I'm John Sunkel. I'm an Environment Canterbury Councillor representing Mid Canterbury. I'm a farmer and a paramedic from Leiston. And a paramedic mm. or a safe hand. And next to me is Fiona. Hi, I'm Fiona Crombie. I'm from Central Plains Water Limited. We're an irrigation scheme here in Canterbury um, in the Selwyn Waihora uh, district. And I'm the Environmental Group Manager. Great, and Sarah. Elizabeth. So, sorry, why am I calling you Sarah? <laughs> Kia ora. Um, I'm Elizabeth Dole. I'm the Chief Executive of Irrigation New Zealand, which is the organisation that uh, represents irrigation schemes, um, farmer irrigators, and uh, water users across New Zealand. Thanks, Elizabeth. So, three experts with you this morning, and of course, also joining us is Eddie the Fior. The Learns Ambassador. We were supposed to have Hong Kong Fui from Santa Maria Primary, but I think Hong Kong Fui got lost in the mail because he didn't turn up to my home office in time. He was sent a whole week before, so I'm not happy with um, Post New Zealand Post at the moment because um, poor Eddie has to just hang out with me all week. It's not much fun, is it? <laughs> not as much fun as having Hong Kong Fui. So, anyway, <clears throat> great to have you all with us this morning. And our speaking school this morning, I can see uh, we've got um, Mount Hutt, Mount Hutt College. Yeah, it's Mrs. McConnell. Mrs. McConnell, okay. So it's just yeah, Jess, yeah. I was just trying to um, figure out. Which, which one? So we've got, this, oh, I see, Mrs. McConnell, Jess. Right, so there we are. They're just below you, Barry, on my screen. <laughs> so what we'll do is we'll get underway with our questions. So this is our formal part where we have the speaking schools with their questions. And with a bit of time at the end of the web conference, we will have, um, you guys will have an opportunity to post some extra questions. So um, let's begin with question number one. So what I want to do is get nice and close. 
really an education cell for you as a Question number one. Um, hi, I'm Ruben. What are the reasons for our waterways being polluted and how we, how is this being fixed? Should have worked out who's going to answer this. John. Good. If I can have a first go at, at talking about that, every action that, that we as, as people have in our environment creates some kind of reaction. So whether it's farmers farming, whether it's uh, you driving down the road uh, in the car, all the actions that we have um, have some reaction. So our waterways, we, we were particularly worried about things like phosphate, phosphorus and, and nitrogen. And how those phosphates and nitrogens get into the waterways, two different kind of ways. The biggest contributor to, to nitrate, the nitrogen getting into waterways, is through pee. So when animals urinate, they urinate onto the ground that... Uh, then gets washed through into the soil, into the waterways, and then flows out into what we call the receiving environment and eventually into our rivers and streams. And that urine has very, very high levels of, uh, of nitrogen in it. Um, the other one, the phosphorus one, can come from dung from animals, but more particularly, all our soil has phosphorus attached to it. So when we have... Um, Pugging, when we have degradation of our waterways, when we have soil getting into our waterways and runoff, uh, we take soil and we take phosphorus with us, which then gradually builds up in the waterways. And there's also the natural processes of the breakdown, particularly in the Canterbury Plains, of, of the main rocks that we have, which are grey wacky. And as those rivers uh, pound away at the stones and the boulders, and they're really big at the top, and by the time they get to the sea, they're quite small. As that grinds away, that also releases phosphorus. So there's some natural things happening, and there are the things that uh, we as, as people, uh, I guess, give to the environment through our actions. So what are we doing to try and, and reduce those actions? There's a big old planning process happening out there called the Canterbury Water Management Strategy. We won't go into the big words. But essentially, we're drawing a line under the, the activities that we have used maybe for 150, 160 years in New Zealand and said, those things that we've done in the past have created a problem and will continue to create a problem. And we've looked at the issues around stocking rate, over-irrigation, washing nutrients through, uh, overuse of fertiliser, large stocking rates, all the things that, that happen on farms, and, and we've uh, sorted out what we need to do to reduce and or stop the losses to the environment. So that's the number one thing that we're doing. So that will reduce the amount of nitrate and nitrogen getting into the soil and then into water, and also reduce the sediment and the phosphorus that gets into our waterways. And we'll talk more about those later. Great, thanks, John. Yeah, it's um, it's a huge issue. It's a big question. So I think John, you've actually done a really good job to to summarise um, how that pollution happens in the first place and the sorts of things that are going on, particularly around Canterbury here, um, 
to offset some of those effects. Thanks very much, uh, Ruben, for that first question. So we'll move now to question number two, please, from Mount Hutt College. Um, I'm Jen, and how big of a problem are poisonous algae, and is it possible to get rid of them altogether? Thanks, Jen. Is that you again, John? I can start. Um, when nature conspires to create the problem, it can be a huge problem. And, and we've all heard about how it can be deadly for, for pets and dogs and people. The algae is always there. It sits in the environment. But when we get the right levels of sunshine, the right levels of water temperature, the right levels of nitrate, nitrogen and phosphorus in the waterways, it, it creates almost the perfect soup. And then we start to get the algae to grow and get beyond what would be the normal levels which, which create um, a, a level that's unsafe to people and animals. It is a natural phenomenon, but the things that we have been doing within our environment are creating more opportunities for that to happen. So again, the, the plans and the rules and the actions that we're asking farmers and the communities to make will hopefully in the future reduce the opportunities by reducing the nitrate and phosphorus that we have in the waterways. Okay, nothing more to add? No? All right, thanks Jen. Good question, another really good question. We're up to question number three, please, Mount Hutz. Hi, I'm Flynn. Hi, Flynn. Is there a way to turn seawater into fresh water and make it usable for farming? So, is it, oh, that's interesting. Is there a way to turn seawater into fresh water? Yeah, Elizabeth. Kia ora, Flynn. Thanks for your question. Um, yes, there is a way that we can turn salt water into fresh water. It's called a process, it's a process called desalination. And I believe that it's done through a really complicated chemical process called reverse osmosis. Um, it is used in areas where there's big cities, um, where there's lots of people that need fresh water to drink and do the dishes and flush the toilet and that sort of thing, and they don't have a lot of fresh water available like nearby lakes or rivers, or where they don't have a lot of rainfall like parts of Australia and parts of America. Um, desalination is very, very expensive, and it uses an awful lot of electricity to do it. So in New Zealand, because we have lots of rainfall and not a very big population, we don't need to do desalination, so that's good. Um, in terms of using it for farmers, that doesn't really happen uh, very often because it is so expensive and it's so hard to do. So it generally only happens in big cities where they need lots of water for drinking. Mm. Interesting question and good thinking. Of course, there's a whole lot more seawater on the planet than there is fresh water. So um, yeah, kind of makes sense to try and use some of it, I suppose. Thanks, Flynn. Uh, we're up to question number four now, please. Hi, I'm Layla. Um, what happens to all our water waste and do we reuse it? Water waste. Hi again, thanks Layla. Um, so there are different ways of dealing with wastewater and it depends uh, where it's come from, 
and uh, how many people have contributed to that waste. So for instance, in a city, um, the wastewater will go through pipes um, under the ground and it will go to a big treatment plant where the waste is taken out of the water and it becomes fresh water and then it gets discharged um, either into a lake or perhaps through a large outfall into the ocean. Uh, in smaller communities, they might have um, what's called oxidation ponds where the wastewater is treated through natural processes. So all the, um, the bugs and germs uh, are removed from the water before it can get used for um, whether that's uh, recycled through use on farmland or put into uh, waterways in a fresh state. Uh, then when there's areas where there aren't any sort of sewerage systems available, uh, wastewater goes into septic tanks, which um, some people have at their houses or their farms, and that again uses natural processes to break down all the bad stuff in the water, and then it seeps out into the ground, back into the groundwater um, through a process that where it's, it's become clean. So it really depends on the area where uh, how your wastewater is treated, but one thing we don't want is untreated wastewater to go back into freshwater bodies, whether that's lakes or rivers, because that's a major source of pollution. Right, and actually, if you go to Learns Field Trips, um, where you select and have a look at the different field trips on offer, you can look for um, a field trip called Wellington Water, was that what it was called, Shelley? Yeah, Wellington Water. And we actually go into a wastewater treatment plant and see exactly what that process is, how that water is treated before it's released back into the environment. It's quite interesting. Thanks very much for that question. I think we're up to question number five. Hi, I'm Morgan. How much do our actions impact the environment and how can we clean the water that has been impacted? Thanks, Morgan. Thanks for that question, and and that is kind of the million-dollar question that all of us, whether we are regulators or irrigators or farmers or the wider community, are, are really challenged by. Um, I think, as I said earlier, every action that we take um, has, has some kind of reaction and therefore has an impact on the environment. If we're driving on cars, we have carbon dioxide and we talk about greenhouse gases and, and, and climate change and warming and those sorts of things. And the brake pads in our cars, the, the things that let us stop in a hurry, have, uh, have copper in them. So if you're in the city, one of the major issues that we have in our waterways in the cities is, is copper. And that copper comes from the ground down, down um, brake pads that get into the waterways and then affect uh, the rivers and the fish and, and all the things that live in there. And equally within the rural community, it's the nitrogen, the phosphorus. So what are some of the things that we're doing within the rural community to, to try and stop uh, the things that are happening in the environment? One of them is that we're trying to breed new plants that uh, have less nitrate nitrate and nitrogen in them, so that when the animal eats them, they don't excrete so much nitrogen. Yeah, we're all adults here, so they don't pay as much nitrogen, so then it doesn't get into, into the, the environment and into our rivers. And it all happens through different mechanisms. We're also looking at breeding animals that don't 
release as much nitrogen. So it's about breeding and selecting animals and plants that reduce the effect that we have on the environment. And we're also looking at fertilizer and how we apply fertilizer and minimizing the, the amount of fertilizer that goes on. You'll hear people talking about natural fertilizer and, and chemical fertilizer. All fertilizers are natural and chemicals in a sense. The air that we breathe is 78% nitrogen, and yet uh, we, we get very worried about nitrogen. But if we have too much of it in the wrong place, we have a problem. So we're looking at how we can reduce the impact that we have because all our actions, whether it was the septic tanks that Liz talked about before, or the beach sewage plants in our cities that then dump water out into the environment and the seas and the lakes, we have those effects everywhere. Mm. Just when you start putting it like that, John, it's, um, it seems like a, a huge problem. You know, we can't get away from the use of transport um, if you're talking about the cities. Um, so, you know, and I guess even the wearing of tyres is putting, you know, microplastics in, in waterways as well. Uh, so lots to think about, lots of opportunities for problem solving. So some of the things I guess that we do do um, to try and treat all of that is that we have wetlands where the water runs through it and it gets treated um, and comes out as clean water. So wetlands is a great way of actually treating all of this and we do have them in our cities as well. Um, they collect all the runoff from all those concrete and permanent surfaces that you see um, around the place and they, they seep through and they treat it before it gets discharged into sort of our groundwater and our surface waterways. So there are things we can do to actually um, treat that water. It's not, um, it's not going untreated. Yeah, well, and the creation of more wetlands is, is another opportunity that I was you know, talking about different opportunities because a lot of wetlands were <clears throat> were gotten rid of over, you know, for, for the creation of, of land for cities and farming and that sort of thing. And it's only just sort of really recently that wetlands have been seen as a very beneficial thing for the environment. So a lot more have been worked on to be created. Uh, I think we're up to questions. Six, are we now? Hi, I'm Gemma, and how can we keep our water clean? Okay, John. I guess just to start with, we've talked about all the things that we're doing, and Fiona talked about wetlands. One of the other things that we are looking at, and the science is starting to understand as we use things called biofilters, which is putting our wood chips into the ground, and having water run through it. So there's a whole bunch of technology and bright ideas happening out there to, to achieve some of the things that we, we want to do. Now I've lost my train of thought, so I'll pass it back to Fiona. <laughs> All right, well, we've, got, um, we've got, actually got a, quite a few things that we're doing um, with the irrigation scheme. So working with Environment Canterbury, we're setting up um, what's called targeted stream augmentation. So one of the things we do is we take water from one river and we discharge it into the ground and it seeps out into another river. And that just increases the flow. Um, and that way we can, we can keep some of the flows in those lowland streams that you hear that are drying out. Um, it keeps those flowing. So you don't get the algae build up and that sort of thing that you do see um, 
in some of our rivers. We've also got an environmental management fund. So what we do is we go out and we do some riparian planting or we fence off stock water races to stop the animals getting into the, our rivers. Um, so there's a whole lot of work that is going on out there to actually prevent um, some of these environmental issues and keep our waterways clean. And you guys could even think about some of the small steps you could make in your own communities uh, about about how to keep your waterways clean. Yeah. Maybe you've identified an area where there is some pollution happening and you could think about some action to take to try and offset that. So our farmers, they have, um, they have to implement what is called a farm environment plan. So they look at all, all the actions that they're doing on, on farm and then they identify what is risky, what of those actions is actually not good for the environment and what is good for the environment. So what should they keep doing and what should they stop? So that's something that we can do um, as a rural community as well, is look at what actions are good, good for the environment and what are bad. Mm. All right, another great question there at Mount Hutz, and we're up to question number seven. Hi, I'm Toby. What happens when the groundwater runs out? I guess that's a great question, Toby, um, and, and one that worries lots of lots of people, and it's in the media at the moment when uh, we have some, some folk bottling water and shipping it out. What I can say is that uh, we're not going to run out of groundwater. Groundwater is almost, uh, it's constant. Some people have a view that it's like a bucket and if we suck all the water out of the bucket, there's no water left. The cycle that we live in and then it operates is rain falls on the Southern Alps or falls as snow that then comes down into the rivers, it infiltrates into the plains, and that water is, is most of the water that we have runs under the plains and out to sea. So yes, we do draw it down and we lose some of the water that's sitting at the top of the aquifers, but we are not going to run out of water under Canterbury or under Christchurch uh, because of the volume of water and snow that falls on the Southern Alps and then flows through. It's good to know, Elizabeth. So um, some farmers do use groundwater for farming and um, Fiona's gonna talk a bit about that. But um, in order to take groundwater out of the ground, um, everyone needs to have um, a permit from the council to do that. Um, and that's the same if someone's going to take water from a river or a lake, um, and that's for farmers or hydroelectricity generators or whoever it is. So part of that permit is that it's got rules within the permit that says you're only allowed to take so much. So what the regional council does when it gives out permits to people is it says this is the amount of water that we think can be taken sustainably um, and you're not allowed to take more than that. So if people take more water than they're allowed to, um, then they can get fined. Um, so that's a protection that's in place to make sure that more water isn't taken out and can be replenished from um, uh, snowfall and rainfall, as John said before. There are parts of the world where there is something, and I've only just found this out, called fossil water. And fossil water is water that is deep, deep, deep underground and is so deep that it doesn't get topped up by rainfall or snowfall. So that's in places like Saudi Arabia and North Africa. Um, and so if that water was taken out, it would never be replaced. But we don't have any of that in New Zealand. Okay. 
Interesting stuff. Good question. Thanks for that. And um, did you want to say something? Yeah. So um, one of the reasons the scheme that I work for, Central Plains, was set up is to actually reduce the amount of groundwater that is taken. So in our rivers, and our main one is called the Rakaia River, it has excess flow above what is needed for the ecology of our rivers to actually survive. So what we're trying to do is switch those, those irrigators that use groundwater off and switch them through to using all this excess water that if it was just flowing down the river, would go straight out to sea. And it wouldn't be used and it would be mixed with seawater and unable to be used. So that's one of the great things about our scheme is that we are reducing the amount of groundwater that is used. So in our scheme, we, they were using about 60% of what Liz mentioned about the consented groundwater. Um, and we've got them down to only using 20% of that. So we've had a 40% reduction and that's the amount that is kept in the ground now. So another 40% of what was used is now in the ground. Um, from our users. So that's a really good um, example of, of protecting the, that groundwater. Awesome. Another great question, Mount Hutt. I think we're up to question number eight now. Hi, I'm Lighty. Is plastic pollution a problem in our fresh waterways like it is in the ocean? Mm, good question. Hi Nighty, thanks for the question. Um, the short answer is yes, plastic pollution is a problem everywhere. So we all need to be really careful about what we do with plastic. We need to reduce the amount that we use in the first place and we need to recycle it wherever we can. Uh, it's a fresh waterways right across the world. Um, the reason there is so much plastic in the ocean at the moment is because it's come from rivers. So particularly in areas where there's lots and lots of people, um, like in parts of Asia, uh, and they don't have good um, systems for taking away um, people's rubbish, a lot of that rubbish ends up in waterways, uh, rivers and streams, and then that gets carried out into the ocean. And then it all collects in those big huge rafts that you would have seen on TV where there's lots and lots of plastic pushed together by the ocean currents. So it's something that we all need to be aware of because it's not just harmful for the ocean, it's also harmful for the life that lives within our streams and rivers. So it's harmful for fish, it's harmful for birds, um, and it's also um, harmful for uh, people um, who are using waterways, uh, whether that's fishing or swimming or whatever. So yeah, it's a big problem everywhere and something everyone needs to be responsible for. John? Uh yeah, it seems a wee bit silly in a sense. We, we think about our cities and the potential for the pollution to happen in the likes of the Avon River and then the Heathcote River, and it does. We're just stuff and rubbish and things end up in the river. But one of the other places where we really have a problem with the effects of, of people and rubbish and the likes is down in the Mackenzie country, where we have a real problem with pollution, and that is really people pollution. Uh, we concentrate a lot on, on farms and farming pollution and the effects that that has on the environment. For the folk in the Mackenzie country and in those lakes and rivers down there, the biggest impact is people because of uh, local and, and foreign tourists rubbish that gets dropped and washed in, the effect of their habits on, on those areas. So yes, real problem in places that you might least expect it. Yeah, you wouldn't think, thinking about the Mackenzie country, I, I think about 
pristine um, mountains and lakes and that sort of thing. Um, quite simple, isn't it, really? Uh, put, put things in the rubbish bin. But also, I guess, there's the whole packaging issue in the first place, that things come in plastic. You could actually look at the field trip from a couple of weeks ago, Sustainable Seas, where Shelley talks a lot more about the topic of plastic pollution. And in fact, Marine Reserves, our first field trip for this term, where we do a beach cleanup. So just some different ideas to think about um, in terms of plastic pollution as a whole, and then some things you could maybe do to contribute to your local environment. Okay, doing really well, guys. We're up to question number nine. My question is, has there always been water on Earth? If not, where did it come from? It's a great question. Who, who would dare to answer that one? I think I've got a PhD. <laughs> that is a really excellent question. Thank you. Um, now, I'm not a scientific expert on, any, on this by any stretch, and as I understand it, there isn't necessarily agreement amongst scientists as to where all the water on Earth came from. Um, so water is a um, combination of elements, um, hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, and so there, it's possible that um, the, the elements were formed when the Earth was formed as part of the, the Big Bang, um, and that the elements have broken down and released water through that process. Um, water, the way, the Earth is, its place in the solar system means that we have water in the form of liquid, uh, which is one of the reasons why we have life on Earth. So uh, water exists in solid form as ice, in liquid form as water, and then in gaseous form as water vapour. So where we are in the solar system means we have the exact right climate to allow for uh, liquid water which supports life. And so in all its forms on Earth, um, it go, we have a hydrological cycle, which John talked about before. So we have water in the oceans and the lakes, rivers, which evaporates. Um, it condenses in the sky and forms clouds, and then it falls back to the Earth um, as snow or rain. And then it goes through the Earth's surface to form groundwater, which then connects with those water bodies and comes back down through precipitation, snow and rain. And that's why we call it a cycle, because it's continuous. So that's a really excellent question, and I'm afraid I can't answer it um, in terms of have we always had water here, but without it, there would be no life. So it's critical. Very good answer. Very good answer. Yeah, bravo. Um, and the cool thing about water is whether it's vapour, liquid, uh, you know, gas, liquid, or solid, it's always the same. It's always the same. So it never, it never changes. It changes in its state, but it's always H2O. Um, some things, when they get heated, uh, they, they, it changes its whole chemical makeup. Um, so it's a pretty cool substance. We're up to our final question from Mount Hutt this morning. Thank you. Uh can NZ's waterways slash environment sustain the irrigation that's needed to support our farming industry? That was Hugh. Elizabeth. Okay, another good question. 
So yes, as long as it's done within sustainable limits. So like I said before, um, anyone that takes water, whether that's for farming and irrigation or hydroelectricity or even drinking water in towns, um, the, the taking of that water either from groundwater sources or lakes or rivers has to be done by a permit that's given by the local council. And so permits will usually always have on them conditions which say how much you can take. And so those conditions have been worked out by scientists who have said, this is how much water is in this water body across the year. And these are the limits within which we think water can be taken so that that's a sustainable amount, so that there is enough water for everyone and so that it doesn't hurt the biodiversity that's within the waterways and it doesn't lead to things like algal blooms uh, that we talked about before. Now we haven't always got it right, so in some places we've found, particularly with climate change happening, that maybe the amount of water that's been taken in some places isn't necessarily going to be sustainable in the future. So we need to think about how we use our water resources better, like in ways that the Central Plains Scheme is here now, um, so that there is water available for every, every use. And under climate change, that's going to become even more important because we know in some places they're going to get drier through lots of droughts like we've seen at the top of the South Island at the moment. And in some places there's going to be more floods, uh, lots more rain happening in bigger events, so more rain happening all at the same time. So we might need to think about how we store some of that water um, so that it's more available in areas and at times when it's drier because we know things are going to change. So we need to think about how we're going to do that so that we do have enough water at the right time so it's sustainable for all uses. Yeah, well, it's been really dry up where I live in Kitty Kitty. And we have two 25,000 litre water tanks that are almost empty. And um, I'm really hoping it's going to rain. I even started thinking the other day, Elizabeth, that um, I might need to get a third tank just so I can store that water for these long periods where it's not going to be raining. It's all my daughters in their long showers. John. Um, it's a question that I don't have the answer for. Um, but I, was, I was heard something on the radio or on, on TV the other day that talked about the percentage of water in the world that is, is fresh water versus uh, the percentage that's seawater. And it's like just a really, really small amount of the water we have on Earth is, is fresh water. And a it's drop like in the ocean. Drop, literally <laughs> a drop in the ocean in, in comparison. And then went on to talk about how 70 or 80% of the fresh water that we have in the world is used for agriculture, for, for growing food. So a really good question for you guys to think about is if we are not sustainable in the use of groundwater or our fresh water for growing food, how do we grow food? How do we support uh, billions of people in mm. the world <clears throat> if we are really worried about the use of, of water to grow food? It's, it's a really good question when the, the amount of fresh water is so small and the significant amount of it is used to grow food. Hence the subtitle for this field trip, A Balancing Act, because it sure is a balancing act. Thanks for that final question from Mount Hutt College this morning, Hugh. Uh, really well done. Great job from you guys this morning. So um, what we'll do now is we'll switch from our speaking school, um, Mount Hutt College, to take in some questions uh, from all of you.
<coughs> with the time that we've got left, which is not much, but we'll do the best that we can to field questions. If you go to the chat pod, there's a little uh, chat icon down the bottom of your screen. You'll see that there are some, there's a, uh, an opportunity to post your questions there, type them out. Um, so I'm just scrolling through now, and so I can see that there's uh, the questions that we've had this morning. Um, and so here is a question uh, from Vanessa Burrell. I assume that's a, a teacher. So how is the effect on native fish and aquatic life monitored? Yep. John? Um, I guess that's all part of the, the science and the monitoring that we do as a, as a regional council. And here in Canterbury, we probably have one of the best scientific teams in the country in looking at, at what is happening within our environment. We have NIWA, we have DOC, uh, we have a bunch of different outfits out there doing the assessments and the understanding of, of what we have left in, in the natural environment. And I say what we have left because we have changed our environment so significantly in the, in the 160, 170 years that we've been here. So there's real effort out there in understanding, uh, particularly in the freshwater fishes, the, the galaxids and the like, and the mudfish, what we've got and what we need to, to one, stop any further decline, and then to start to, uh, to build again those, those resources and, and grow those populations. Thanks, John. <coughs> okay. Now, I can't guarantee we can answer all of these questions, um, simply because we perhaps don't have the exact expertise with us, but um, we'll do our best. And we also are limited with time, but here's another question here about um, an example of one of the successful ways that urban waterways has been cleaned up. Does anybody have an answer for that? John, is there a, is there a good news story out there that's, um, that's worked? I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling off the top of my head to, to think of New Zealand ones, and, and someone will be really grumpy out there when I can't think of them. I'm not sure whether Liz... Liz, Liz, Liz might be able to answer. I can't, I can't remember the name of it, I'm afraid, but I know that there is a, a project in Auckland um, that's been really successful, and what the community did there was they got together and said, this stream that runs through our community is really important to us, and we want to make an effort to clean it up. So they formed a community group, um, and they did a lot of work cleaning up the waterway in their area by removing all the rubbish, uh, and then they put in uh, traps, I think it was, to stop more rubbish getting in. And they planted the sides of it, so what's known as the riparian area, which is um, the sides of the, of the stream, with lots of native vegetation. And so that's a really good, what, native vegetation, riparian management is a really good way of stopping um, sediment, nutrients, pollution, getting into the waterway in the first place. And it's also a really good way of um, removing the nutrients once they are in the water because the plants use those nutrients to grow. Uh, so it removes them from the water. Uh, so it's really a, a, a double win in that respect. Um, I can certainly find out the name of that project and we can put it up. So can we do that? Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, so, because yes, I know it exists, and um, it's, I think it's out in West Auckland, but don't quote me on that, but I'll find out, and we can put that up on the, on the uh, website. 
probably is West Auckland. I'm from West Auckland. We're pretty, we're pretty cool guys, people out there. Okay, so we've got another question from Mrs. Burrell. Can you explain why well, there's chlorine in Christchurch's drinking water? Yes. <laughs> I, no, another another controversial another, topic. Another great question. Unfortunately, it's not our responsibility to can, so I'll pass that one off. The reason for the chlorine in Christchurch City's water supply is that Christchurch City could not guarantee that the wellheads, that is the parts of the wells that sit at the top of the ground, are secure enough to be able to guarantee that there would be no infiltration of germs and bugs and the like into the water. So from the surface. So they have been required because of the risk to put chlorine in while they rebuild and secure those, those wellheads. So they're well on the way to uh, achieving that. And as soon as those wellheads and all that engineering is done, Christchurch will be back to a point where it does not uh, require chlorine. It's not the groundwater. It is not the groundwater that's the problem. It's what could come in from the top. Okay. So it's not forever. <laughs> not forever. I'm sure, I'm sure it's okay for a little while. Um, so here's a question here. Why is, why is the water in rivers harmful, but the water in oceans is not? Well, I'm not quite sure whether that's completely true. Um, and then their other question is, is fossil water better than other water, and in what way? <laughs> well, let's deal with the first um, question, because I guess if there's, if there's stuff going into rivers, those rivers are going to flow into the ocean. So, you know, that can affect that, the ocean water. I, I'm, I'm not sure where the question's coming from, but I guess in my mind, um, the dilution effect of the oceans. The oceans are so large that I guess through history, we've, we've, we've dumped the waste from sewerage and from meatworks and any kind of industry mm. and whatever into the sea, and it's just been diluted away and, and no one's worried about it. Um, our rivers, because of the... Uh, the flows and, and uh, the lack of volume, anything we dump into them has a, has a greater effect because we increase the intensity of those, those pollutants mm. in it. So I suspect that could be an answer to why some of our rivers have a greater problem than the seas. But what we're finding is with plastics and a whole bunch of other things, uh, what we thought wasn't happening is in fact happening and that we cannot just keep dumping stuff into our waterways whether they be rivers or the sea, and expect nothing to be happening because we're seeing those great big rafts of plastic and rubbish in the middle of the Pacific. Yeah, and I mean, you talk about our actions um, having an effect, and and everything's got everything's connected anyway. So you know, the rivers are hugely connected to the oceans. Elizabeth, we talked about algal blooms before, and that's when there's too much algae growing and it grows out of control. Um, and that does happen in the ocean as well. And um, as I understand it, it's probably going to happen more often under climate change because uh, as, the, as our oceans uh, are getting warmer, uh, it creates an environment that algae likes to grow in. Um, so we could see that issues to do with algal blooms and that sort of thing in the oceans, which haven't been as big a problem in the past, could start getting worse. Uh, there was another question there about fossil water, wasn't there? Yeah, so it was, is it better, better. than other water? 
I, I, I don't think it's necessarily better, but it's very different because it can't ever be replaced. So um, there is tiny little microorganisms that live in groundwater. Um, and I don't know about fossil water in particular, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's certain types of little tiny um, animals that live in fossil water that don't live in other types of groundwater. Um, so that might be something to find out a bit more information about, but I suspect that if you want to think about how water could be special because it supports different um, ecosystems, then that might be one way that fossil water is more special or different from other types of groundwater. Certainly an interesting thing. I've never heard of this fossil water, but I'd like to find out a bit more about it. Uh, water drawn from the Rakaia for irrigation. How does that affect the life in the Rakaia? So in, on the Rakaia River, we have what's um, called minimum flows. And so at the minimum flow, the water in it is enough to sustain the ecological and cultural values of the river. And at that level, we can't take any water from the river if it's at that minimum flow. We can only take it if the flow in the river is above a certain level, in which case it won't actually harm what the ecological and cultural values are of the river. So it's been designed around so that there'll be no impact on the ecology of, that, of the river. Yeah. Good to know. Hey guys, look, we, we had a cutoff time um, of 10 because we've got a lot to do today so I'm sorry if we can't get to your question um, okay I'll just just a, just a quick question because what do you mean by the cultural values of the river was it, it was an add-on to that okay so the cultural values are all about what people use the river for so whether it's for fishing or for mahinga kai um, the cultural values all come into consideration when you're looking about what should the minimum flow be in the river okay thanks for clarifying that I, I guess just a wee bit of an expansion on, on the cultural values, <clears throat> particularly if we take them to, to Maori values, why is water, and then we have the, the concept of muri, and that, so it's the life force and the life blood of, of Maori, of the values of, of that water and that waterway, and what it represented in their history as a means of transport up and down rivers between maybe the east coast and the west coast, what they could find as far as food and and what they could use for clothing. So it's as a spiritual as, as much as a physical experience and understanding of the water. So all those values get taken into account when we look at the effects that uh, anyone might have on the abstraction or depositing of, of water back into waterways. Mm, kia ora, John. Okay, so yeah, like I said, guys, we, we have run out of time, but look, please do join us tomorrow for our second web conference of the week, again at 9.15, and hopefully we'll have some time to answer any further questions after our speaking school session that starts off. But um, today on the website, you can have a look at my travel diary. Um, tomorrow will be the first of the videos that get filmed today that you'll be able to see first thing in the morning. So what we'll do now is you can actually all unmute and say a big goodbye. Hey everybody. Hi. Bye. 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 Bye.
kitty kitty. I'm not sure. I can't see you guys, but um, kitty kitty across my home. You guys. See you later, guys. Have a great day. Thanks, everybody. Oh, this is